past the two-foot goose with the hula-hen shoehorn and cut your hair in a doomsday crew cut, you juiced-up declins. Short piece of prose there submitted by Jeremy Renner. I can't understand the career of Jeremy Renner. I can't understand why Jeremy Renner is like the lead in so many films. It just doesn't make sense. He reminds me a lot of a belly button. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I'm not saying that Jeremy Renner looks like a belly button. I'm just saying that a belly button, belly buttons are, are they're there on your midriff. And they have dignity. They don't do anything. They're just there and we accept them. And everyone has a belly button and that's fine. But you're not going to put your belly, you're not going to put your belly button in your forehead. And sometimes when I'm watching a movie and Jeremy Renner is the lead actor, it feels a bit like I'm speaking to someone who's had their belly button surgically implanted into their forehead. Jeremy Renner has an app. There's a Jeremy Renner app. You can get it on the app store. Jeremy Renner wants your data. This episode is sponsored by the Jeremy Renner app. I don't want to sound like I'm being a cunt about Jeremy Renner. It's just that a lead actor is a very specific thing. And I feel that Jeremy Renner gets cast as a lead when he'd be much better served as a supporting actor. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's incredible supporting actors. Tom Hardy. Like Tom, okay, Tom Hardy gets cast as a lead, but Tom Hardy's best as a supporting actor. When he acts as the the conflict to the lead. Who else have we got? Stephen Graham. Incredible supporting actor. Amazing. So I'm not engaging in Jeremy Renner slander. How did Jeremy Renner become like a lead, lead actor? I think it's because of that film, The Heart Locker. Do you remember The Heart Locker? It won like 19 Oscars. Of course you don't. Of course you don't. The Heart Locker was a film from about 2009. It was an okay film. Grand. But it won like way too many Oscars. Because America was invading Afghanistan. And everyone needed to feel sorry for the troops. America likes to invade countries and then and then make films about how sad it makes the soldiers. So it got like a million Oscars because of that and Jeremy Renner was the lead. The fuck am I doing talking about Jeremy Renner? Do you know why I think I'm talking about Jeremy Renner? So I'm doing a... This, this week's podcast is a... There's a slightly different approach. I got up at 7am this morning... And now I'm recording the podcast. I don't usually do that. I usually record the podcast late at night. And there's no real reason for me to do that. And I kind of don't like doing it. When I first started this podcast, three, four years ago, whatever it was, I was working a day job and I'd come home from work and I would record this podcast in the evenings. And that's just the way it's been. For the entirety of this podcast. I record this podcast at night time. And over the pandemic in particular. I might start recording at 8pm. And then I'm not finished until 8am the next day. So I would. Sometimes I record this podcast throughout the entire night. Now I do like. The idea of. Like I romanticise the idea of recording this podcast. At night time. Alone in my studio while everyone is asleep. I think that's because... When I was a little child... 
and I might get scared at night time. You know the way you'd be a little child and all of a sudden you might have a nightmare or you're scared to go to sleep, so you're awake. Sometimes when I was like six or seven, I'd turn on the radio and I wouldn't feel alone because it's like there's nothing to be scared of. There's someone awake in a studio up in Dublin and they'll talk like this and they'll remind you that we're here all through the night. All through the night we're here. Stay alert if you're driving. Stop in for a coffee. A truck driver getting a titwank from a pigeon on the M50. It's new music from Chris the Belg. And I internalised that as something soothing. And you're, you're always on the side of the nighttime DJ too because you feel as if they're, they're doing some sort of penance. Like they're in radio purgatory. They're being punished for not being popular enough in the daytime. I mean, maybe they're the Jeremy Renner of radio DJs. Maybe they'd be, you know, they don't, they don't need to be in the daytime having a lead slot, shouting and screaming. Maybe they're better off between the hours of 2am and 6am just being a supporting actor. So yeah, I'm recording this early in the morning today after a full night's sleep. And what I've just noticed is that my morning brain tends to fixate on Jeremy Renner and how much he he reminds me of belly buttons. But realistically now, there's no need for me to be recording this podcast throughout the night. So this week, I'm trying to begin a new pattern. I'm trying to re-pattern the neural pathways in my brain, to be honest, and say to myself, you get up in the morning and you record the podcast throughout the day and then you go to bed and you don't interrupt your sleep cycle. Because that's ridiculous. What's the point? This is your full-time job now. You can make your own hours. So this week's podcast isn't about Jeremy Renner. I have a... This is a hot take podcast. This week's episode is a hot take podcast. I don't have a fully formed hot take. By which I mean I don't have an answer. But what I'd like to do is explore some themes in a hot take fashion. I want to talk about the children's cartoon Captain Planet from the 1990s which aired from 1990 up until 1996. Now if you're a first time listener I I wouldn't recommend this podcast as being a good place to start. This is this is for real seasoned breeders. This is quite a niche specific podcast hot take where I explore Captain Planet and contrast it with the 1980s US presidential election and the science fiction of J.G. Ballard. If that doesn't sound like something you'd be into, then this might not be the episode for you. Go back to some earlier episodes. Pick some episodes from the start if you're a new listener. But if you're a regular listener, you know the crack and you might enjoy this. So the cartoon Captain Planet. Unless you're like 15, you probably remember Captain Planet because... It ended in like 96, 97, but it definitely would have been shown on channels like Cartoon Network well up into the the early 2000s at least. I'll give you a basic synopsis of what Captain Planet was if you weren't familiar with it. Children's cartoon and the theme of it was environmentalism, saving the planet. I'll read out the lyrics to the theme tune of Captain Planet because the theme tune gives away really what the thesis of Captain Planet was. The theme tune was... Earth, fire, wind, water, heart, go planet. With your powers combined, I am Captain Planet. Captain Planet, 
He's our hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. He's our powers magnified and he's fighting on the planet's side. Captain Planet, he's our hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. We're the Planeteers. You can be one too. Cause saving our planet is the thing to do. Looting and polluting is not the way. Hear what Captain Planet has to say. The power is yours. It was a well-meaning cartoon. Huge cartoon. And with all due respect, it warned us about everything. Everything that is a genuine issue right now with the environment, with the climate. It warned us about it in the 90s when we were children. I watched Captain Planet as a child. Um, was I mad about it? I won't say I was, I was crazy about Captain Planet, but you'd watch it if it was on TV because you didn't have much choice. It would have been considered edutainment, which means that it was both educational and entertaining. Captain Planet was about the environment. Captain Planet was... It warned us about climate change, warned us about the dangers of overpopulation. Captain Planet criticised the military-industrial complex. Captain Planet spoke about the HIV crisis. As an adult, I now realise that Captain Planet deserves... A serious reappraisal. And it deserves a huge amount of respect for what it tried to do. For the truth that it was managing to deliver millions of children all over the world. When you're analysing children's cartoons from the 90s and the 80s. One thing you have to realise is that children's cartoons in the 80s and 90s. They weren't just entertaining TV shows. What they were was adverts for toys. And it really worked. It really, really worked. The equivalent today would be freemium games. You'll get kids today playing a freemium app on their phone. They think they're playing a video game, but they're not really. What they're doing is they're buying more and more credits or whatever. It's a form of gambling. The equivalent in the 80s and 90s, if you were a kid, was you sat down and you watched the Transformers and you became emotionally invested in watching the Transformers. But really, the Transformers was set up as a TV show to sell you Transformer toys. They were big, long, giant adverts that didn't get, didn't have to be called adverts. They were selling us something. Transformers was owned by Mattel. The TV show was put on by Mattel, a toy maker. My Little Pony, same thing. It wasn't TV show. It was lots and lots of adverts. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, He-Man. The cartoons you grew up with in, in the 80s and 90s were adverts. They were selling you something. Now, how did that happen? Because that sounds really unethical. It's like, holy fuck, you mean all the cartoons I watched as a kid? They weren't really cartoons, they were actually just selling me shit all the time, they were adverts. How the fuck did that happen? Well, that used to not be allowed. In America, in the 60s, in the 70s, there was regulations, there was rules in place about how you advertise to children. Children don't have the capacity to critically think. Children don't have emotional maturity. Children can be easily manipulated. So to advertise to a child carries a completely different set of ethics than it is to advertise to an adult who's capable of critical thinking and consent. Well, the reason all the cartoons in the 80s were advertisement for toys was because of Ronald Reagan, the president of America from 1981 onwards. He was an absolute fucking prick. 
And he's someone I'm going to mention quite a bit in this podcast and how Reagan and Reagan's policies tie in with Captain Planet. A lot of what's wrong with the world today was brought about because of people like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Reagan was a huge fan of what's called deregulation. He believed that rules and regulations weren't there to protect people, but they were actually harmful to business and corporate interests. You see, in the 1960s in America, there was an organisation called ACT, the Action for Children's Television, and they were basically concerned about how children were being advertised to, if children were being manipulated. They funded and hired a load of psychologists to do studies, and they came forward with the evidence that children cannot tell the difference between an advert and a cartoon, therefore you must have responsibility with how you advertise and how you make content on television and entertainment for children. In 1981, Ronald Reagan got rid of all this. Ronald Reagan, one of the first things he did is that he deregulated advertising, which meant it opened up the floodgates for advertisers to sell whatever the fuck they wanted to children in whatever way possible. So what you saw was this huge explosion of fast food, cereals, you started to see cartoons on cereal boxes, Ronald McDonald, the Hamburglar, and all these toy companies now started to make action figures. So the cartoons we grew up with were not cartoons, they were adverts, thanks to Ronald Reagan. And this was America, but America is, America, especially through the 80s and 90s, dictated the culture of the world and everybody else followed. And I speak a lot on this podcast about how millennials, millennials now are people, people over the age of 30 now, let's be honest, from about 28 onwards into your 40s, that's a millennial now. We as a generation are somewhat infantilized compared to previous generations. I've done full podcast on this where I contrasted Tom Hanks's film Big with the modern corporate office environment. Very quickly, Tom Hanks's film Big is about a child who gets into an adult's body and the whole, and it's it's a film from about 1986. The whole comedy of the film is, oh my god, he's in his thirties and he's playing with toys. He's wearing sneakers to the office. Oh my god, he wants a bouncy castle in the office. This is crazy. And that was hilarious in 1986. But now that's normal. Google, Facebook, any big tech company, you walk in there, you don't have to wear a suit. It's okay to, okay to wear sneakers on your feet. And it's perfectly acceptable to have a bouncy castle or a beanbag in the office. In fact, it's normal. So a number of factors have led to our collective infantilization. Consumerism and how we were advertised to as children is one of those reasons. Just one of them. The big reason, of course, is the policies that people like Reagan and Thatcher brought in. Neoliberalism. Which means trust in the free market. Deregulating things. That's why there's no houses. That's why there's no job security anymore. That's why there's no pensions anymore. That's why college is really expensive. That's why it's okay for vulture funds to buy up tons of property. That's why people in their 30s live at home with their parents. Corporate interests placed above the needs of people under the banner of deregulation. Regulations hurt business so let's get rid of regulations and let the market roam free like a wild animal. So millennials are are a generation that don't have the adult autonomy to pursue the trappings of adulthood and we were also conditioned and brought up in a deregulated advertising environment where we were conditioned to 
not be able to tell the difference between entertainment and an advertisement and to not even know what an advertisement is when it's there in front of us. So Ronald Reagan deregulated children's advertising in 1981. We were left with an onslaught of cartoons and whatever selling us shit without us knowing this. We didn't know we were being sold to. And then when it gets to the late 80s, the late 90s, now this was a fucking gold rush. A lot of people in entertainment and in toys, they made billions. This was a gold rush. And if you're wondering too how they got away with it, like where were the parents walking into the room going, this Transformers business just seems like a big ad. Well, one thing that was hugely present in a lot of 1980s cartoons was the PSA, the Public Service Announcement. Like G.I. Joe, which I believe was the the Mattel Corporation. At the end of every single episode of G.I. Joe, one of the cartoon characters would speak to camera and would be like, kids, say no to drugs. That's one thing that's present throughout the presidency of Ronald Reagan. How did Ronald Reagan get away with being such an absolute bollocks? By creating a narrative of morality. Reagan invented the war against drugs. Just say no to drugs. Reagan played upon American fears of racism, classism. Created an entire criminal class in the minds of America. To protect your children. Family values. Protect your children. And then these messages were inserted into cartoons. So that if you were a parent and you walked into the room. You go, yeah fuck it, okay, they're they're selling us. Alright, they're selling my kid these Transformers. But... This episode is also telling them not to do cocaine. So yeah, that's good. So there was a morality all the way throughout these cartoons as a way to as a way to manufacture the consent of something that was fundamentally unethical. But the people doing it in Hollywood, they're also kind of aware of this is kind of unethical. You know, all these Transformer cartoons and really what we're doing is unfettered advertising of Transformer toys to children. This is a little bit unethical. So Captain Planet came about in 1990, which was quite late in the game. And it was almost a response to how unethical the cartoon industry had been. Captain Planet comes about, and I know this because the the creators are quite open and honest about this. Captain Planet comes about and says, Right, fuck Transformers, fuck He-Man. We want to make a new cartoon. And this new cartoon, what what we're selling here is an ideology. If we can sell all these kids, Transformers and My Little Ponies, through cartoons, why don't we also sell them environmentalism? Because these children are going to grow up to be millennial adults and they're going to have to face the realities of climate change. So why not now, while they're early, let's try and sell them the concept of becoming environmental ad- uh, activists. But are we going to sell them toys as well? Yeah, we're going to sell them toys as well. Yeah, we're going to sell them toys as well, of course. Yeah, but but we're going we're gonna to make them environmental activists too. And I personally think that failed. I think that failed. I think the environmental activist thing fucking failed. Because we were too conditioned at that point to buy the toys. Think back to the schoolyard. I watched Captain Planet as a child. I don't remember coming away from it thinking about the environment. I don't remember speaking 
to my classmates about fuck it, did you see Captain Planet there yesterday when they were talking about uh, overpopulation? Or did you see that Captain Planet episode where the forest was being cut down? I'm really worried about that. That's not what we focused on. What was focused on were... In a typical episode of Captain Planet, there were five cartoon teenagers from all around the world. And these five teenagers from different parts of the world were environmental activists. And they wanted to save the planet from pollution, from overuse of resources. They wanted to stop animals going extinct. These five teenagers each had a ring. And each of these rings represented natural elements. So one had the earth ring. There was the fire ring, the wind ring, the water ring, and then the heart ring, which was emotion and empathy. So each character had all of these rings an individual ring that represented an element, and then when they put their rings together, they would summon Captain Planet, this superhero who was there to fight for the art against the threats to the environment. No one gave a fuck in the schoolyard. No one gave a shit about the environmental issues being raised because what had happened is the way that the toys for Captain Planet, the way that they were marketed, we were too familiar with it. The way the toys were marketed via cartoons in the 1980s was you had to collect all of them. Toys were always presented as a set, a collective set. And if you had just one, it wasn't enough. You had to have the entire set in order to feel complete. And the cartoons went through great effort to make sure that was the case. And that was the case with the five rings of Captain Planet. So how they'd sell the toys is... You could buy an action figure of each individual teenage environmental activist and each activist, what came with it was a little plastic ring that you yourself could wear and then you had to have Captain Planet as well. So owning all the rings or owning the figurines, that became what we as children cared about. The power of advertising and manipulation around us owning all the figurines so that we could have all of the rings Because if you didn't have all the rings, you couldn't summon Captain Planet. That was far more powerful than the theme of the episode about orangutans going extinct. So the deregulated advertising rules ended up really overshadowing the good intentions of the theme of the Captain Planet episodes. And I say this because... I've recently gone back as an adult and looked at some of the episodes and my jaw is dropping. I can't believe the politics that they were giving us at such an early age. I mean, there's an episode from 1991 called The Ultimate Pollution. And this, this, I looked, I looked back at this episode as an adult. I found it on Vimeo and I can't fucking believe it. So this episode, The Ultimate Pollution, it's set in a Middle Eastern country It's two very impoverished villages of uh, Middle Eastern people. And it's two communities who are fighting with each other. They don't like each other. Now, it doesn't go into religion, but this is implied. And these two poor communities spend all their money buying weapons from this baddie called Loot and Plunder. And the theme of the episode is the war between these two communities of people in the Middle East is being created by the villain that's selling them weapons 
and that the war is actually being manufactured by the person profiting from it. That's heavy shit. That's 1991. That's a direct critique of American foreign policy. It's a direct critique of the deregulation of the military industry. It's a direct critique of the military-industrial complex. Like, un- under the Reagan administration, this is a separate podcast, under the Reagan administration, the CIA, the CIA allowed cocaine to be imported, smuggled in from Bolivia and sold in America, fueling the very crack epidemic that Reagan was fighting against, this war against drugs. The CIA imported cocaine into America from Bolivia and then bought guns from Iran where there was an arms embargo so that they could fund a a, a war between right-wing and left-wing forces in Bolivia. You would have had all over the Middle East, the Saudis, Afghanistan, whatever, buying huge amounts of weapons from American and British uh, companies, the military-industrial complex. And this Captain Planet episode from 1991 is directly critiquing that for children. Did I give a fuck? I didn't know. No, I didn't. I wanted the rings. I wanted to have all the rings and all the toys. I didn't really engage with the team. I didn't take... That's not what I took away from it. It was too fantastical. It was too shrouded in consumerism. Fair play for trying. But that advertising just... The message couldn't ring through. You didn't... Here's my big critique of Captain Planet. For every single episode that tried to tell me that I could be the change in the world, for every episode that tried to warn me about climate catastrophe when I was going to be an adult... The concept and idea of becoming change, of doing something about it, that didn't seem accessible when they're dangling a toy in front of my face. What becomes accessible is the toy that I can go out and purchase. If I can just own all five rings, then then I don't need to be an environmentalist. Captain Planet sold us the ultimate consumerist form of performative activism why try and change anything when you can instead buy this simple symbol of change so that's what I want to explore in this podcast I think I I want to appreciate the dichotomy of Captain Planet its heart definitely was in the right place alright and it deserves respect but the way that it was trying to execute this plan just wasn't going to happen not with those lovely shiny toys dangling in front of us. I want to explore the policies and politics in America around climate change in the 1980s, in particular the 1980 presidential election between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. I want to look at some of those policies there and what happened and the negative impact that Ronald Reagan had. And I also want to contrast Captain Planet with the 1968 short story from J.G. Ballard called Why I Want to Fuck Ronald Reagan. But before we get into that, it's time for the Ocarina Pause. Now the Ocarina Pause is... Where the fuck is my Ocarina? Here it is. The Ocarina Pause is... I'm going to play a little Spanish clay whistle. And when that happens, you're going to hear some advertisements. I'm going to delineate clearly what is an advertisement and what is not. So some advertisements are going to play 
these are going to be algorithmically generated advertisements, which means that they are specifically, they're inserted by ACAST and they're specifically targeted by at you, depending on what your internet searches are. And you're an adult with critical thinking and you can choose to not listen to the advert if you don't want to. You don't have to buy this, whatever the fuck you're being sold. All right, here's the ocarina pause. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labeling my emotions, identifying my emotions. I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindby Today to get 10% off your first month. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash blind boy. Quite a lot of anxiety there. A celebratory anxiety. This podcast is funded by you, the listener, via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast if you enjoy listening to this podcast you take something from it it's entertaining you it's filling some space during your day just please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing all I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month that's it if you listen to this podcast and you said to yourself fuck it I like that if I met blind boy in a pub I'd probably buy him a pint well you can do the equivalent of that via the Patreon page. This podcast is my full-time job. This is what I do for work. This is how I earn a living. This is how I pay my bills. I adore doing it. I love doing it. And I'm able to do it because of the Patreon page. If you can't afford it, if you can't afford to go onto the Patreon page, don't worry about it. You're grand. You can listen for free. No bother. Because the person who is paying the Patreon page is paying for you to listen for free. It's a model based on kindness. Everybody gets a podcast. I earn a living. What more could we want? Also, the Patreon model keeps this podcast independent. Okay? I do have advertisers on this podcast. 
to fulfil my contract with Acast who host this podcast. But I get to decide who does advertise. I, I can tell advertisers to fuck off. Most importantly, no advertiser can come in and say, we're sponsoring your podcast so we need you to change the content of your podcast in a way that doesn't that doesn't disagree with our brand. We want your content to align with our brand. No one gets to say that to me. So I get to make the podcast that I want to make and to make sure each episode I'm speaking about something that I'm passionate about and delivering the best quality podcast. Advertisers dictating content is what destroys television, it destroys radio. It's what this podcast is about. You know, a lot of the children's cartoons we grew up on, they were kind of shit. They were kind of shit because they weren't about... They were about base level entertainment as a way to sell toys. They weren't entertainment for the sake of entertainment or creativity for the sake of creativity, you know? Also, support all independent podcasts. If you listen to a podcast that's made by a small team of people, support that podcast, whether it be financially or just telling people about it online, sharing it, you know? Support and share all independent podcasts because the podcast space is becoming overcome with uh, corporate money and it's impacting quality. So that means likes, reviews, shares. They're all very helpful. Follow me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast for my never ending video game musical. And follow me on Instagram, blind by boat club. Dog bless. So back to Captain Planet. What cultural conditions, cultural and political conditions were present that made a children's cartoon like Captain Planet possible? Why all of a sudden did this children's cartoon come out that was speaking so explicitly about issues of the environment. Captain Planet was a superhero and he was a superhero specifically could only be summoned by these five teenage environmental activists when all of them put their rings together and then all of a sudden Captain Planet arrives to fight pollution, to fight poachers, to do whatever. Captain Planet arrives when some bad shit is going down that's going to hurt the environment. Captain Planet came about because of President Jimmy Carter. Now, I'm not one for praising US presidents because the US is an imperialist nation. The US is a superpower, so I, I'm no fan. I've, I've, no, I've no problem, of course, with the, the people of America, the human beings of America. But America as a concept, as a construct, as a political force, as an imperialist superpower, I don't like American foreign policy, Okay. So when I speak positively about a US president, just know that I have that in my awareness. But I'm, under the circumstances, I'm a fan of President Jimmy Carter, who was a one-term president in America from the late 1970s to 1981. Jimmy Carter was an environmentalist. Jimmy Carter, in 1977, installed solar panels on the roof of the White House. This is 1977. This is a time when the average person is not thinking about climate change. The average person is not thinking that the petrol that goes into their car might be harming the environment. This is this hasn't really entered public discourse. And you've got a US president saying, hold on a second, lads. Here's these new things here called solar power. This means that we can get power from the sun that's really clean. And I believe in this so much that I put, I'm putting them on the roof of the White House to demonstrate this. And in 2021, looking back at that, 1977, that's 
How long ago is that? That's like 45 years ago. That's that's nearly 50 fucking years ago, lads. 1977. To see a US president putting solar panels on the fucking roof of the White House. That's really inspiring. But it's also incredibly sad. It's also a bit depressing. Because when Jimmy Carter installed those solar panels, he gave a speech. Now, I don't have an exact quote, but I'll paraphrase it fairly accurately. The gist of the speech was, these here solar panels behind me, that they're going to take the power of the sun to heat the water in the White House. These solar panels here behind me, we can do two things with these. They can either end up in a museum and represent a road that wasn't travelled, or they can be the beginning of a very, very exciting future where we find new forms of energy. And he presented the two roads approach. And sadly, the road whereby alternative energy was explored, that didn't happen. That was shut down very quickly by one person, Ronald Reagan. Ronald fucking Reagan. Here's a list of things that Jimmy Carter tried to do for the environment in the 70s. So Jimmy Carter had been a nuclear engineer when he was working in the Navy, so he understood scientific literature. And when he was president in the late 70s, president of America, he was reading the emerging scientific literature that was warning about climate change. So Carter, because he understood it, took it very seriously. So while he was president, he signed in 14 major pieces of environmental legislation. He he funded the first ever proper research into alternative energy. He gave a big budget to the Department of Energy to research and develop solar power, wind power, things that we now are aware of. Jimmy Carter was the one that said, this is where we need to go. This solar power shit. Because fossil fuels, this isn't going to work for longer. Jimmy Carter brought in, like, the first federally funded toxic waste cleanup. He brought in the first fuel economy standards. And he brought in laws to, you know, for flight, air, water, all these new legislation to prevent pollution in these respects. He brought in a a bill to protect the redwood forests in California and 100 million acres in Alaska because he understood the importance of you have to protect forests. Trees are the lungs of the planet. So that's just some of the shit that Jimmy Carter did while he was president as well as putting those solar panels on the roof of the White House and introducing the idea of solar panels to the public lexicon and to the public imagination. But the one big thing that Carter didn't get a chance to confront was carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Like I said, because he'd been a nuclear engineer, he understood scientific literature. And Carter, going as far back as the early 70s, had been reading about what scientists were saying about what they referred to as carbon dioxide pollution at the time, which was a new concept, a new idea. But basically the scientists saying... There's a fuck ton of carbon dioxide being produced and this carbon dioxide is going to make the world hotter. And when you get to the millennium and beyond, it's going to create real problems. With weather, with climate, the whole shebang. What we call climate change. And Jimmy Carter was the first global leader to recognise that climate change 
was an emerging problem. So in 1977, he said, fuck, okay, what am I going to do? He commissioned what was called the Global 2000 Report to the President of the United States. He commissioned loads of scientists to get together and do a bunch of research and come back with a report and to look into this carbon pollution business. And what they came back with in the report, 1977, uh, they said the world needs to take immediate action around fossil fuels to avoid serious problems down the line. We need to move the fuck away from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are bad news. We need solar, we need wind, we need to reduce carbon, or the world is going to get so hot that bad things will happen. So Jimmy Carter was all set to bring in regulations and legislation that was focused towards not creating more CO2, reducing the CO2 in the atmosphere, regulations that made it difficult for industries to be solely reliant upon uh, fucking fossil fuels. And Jimmy Carter wanted to do in 1980 what what governments only now want to do because they have to regarding the climate. And unfortunately, Ronald Reagan was elected. Jimmy Carter did not win the 1980 presidential election. He failed quite poorly because America had been in a recession. And Ronald Reagan came about with the promise of a new ideology. Ronald Reagan used the term make America great again. Trump wasn't the first person to use that. Ronald Reagan was. Reagan was like... You're all unemployed. You don't have jobs. I'm going to create jobs. I'm going to make America great again. Petrol is not the enemy. Oil is it's how we become rich. Our foreign policy must pursue oil. Reagan brought all this shit in. When he became president, he, he removed Jimmy Carter's solar panels from the White House roof. And another point, when Reagan was asked about the environment asked about climate change. Reagan tried to claim that trees, trees were actually producing harmful chemicals that were heating the planet. Ronald Reagan didn't do anything to regulate industry so that it would produce less carbon dioxide and rely less on on fossil fuels because Reagan didn't believe in regulation of any kind. He believed in letting the fossil fuel industry do whatever the fuck it wanted to maximise profits regardless of ethics because that was his ideology so I don't think people talk enough about the importance of the 1980 US presidential election and what it means for the planet and and our lives today we're now seeing the extreme weather in the news that we're being warned about we're seeing temperatures rising we're seeing ice caps melting we were warned about it Jimmy Carter commissioned it 1977 so the world was given two choices And it took the bad choice. We could be living... If Jimmy Carter had gotten a second term, we could be living in a world right now where we're not talking about climate change, where we're not relying upon fossil fuels. And 1977, like... So if if solar and wind and everything had been properly invested in back then, imagine the world we'd be living in right now. A cleaner, greener more biodiverse planet and possibly one where climate change isn't politicised. The 1980 presidential election p- 
politicised climate change. Climate change isn't something that should be politicised because it affects everybody, it affects humanity. Everyone should believe that climate change is happening and everyone should want to stop it. But the 1980 presidential election made it political. Climate change shouldn't be political, it affects everybody. But that election made it political, in particular when Reagan started saying that he believes trees are causing pollution. It became something that you pick sides on. And Reagan went, climate change regulations are bad for business. I don't believe in climate change. If I believe in climate change, that means I have to start telling industry to be mindful of how much carbon it produces or to be mindful of what fuel it uses. I can't do that. That's regulation. I must deregulate the market and leave all the industry do whatever the fuck it needs to make money. So how does Captain Planet tie in with this? Well, Captain Planet was literally born of the two opposing ideologies of Reagan and Carter. Simple as that. I mentioned previously, Ronald Reagan deregulated everything. He deregulated the advertising industry. So once Reagan deregulated advertising, there was no more ethics in advertising. So cartoons now could just become giant advertisements to sell toys to kids. And that's what happened. So on the one hand, you have Captain Planet being created by the huge company Hanna-Barbera to sell toys. But then on the other hand, you have Captain Planet directly influenced by the policies of Jimmy Carter to try and create environmentalists. And this isn't a hot take, this is fact. So the two people who created the cartoon Captain Planet were Ted Turner and Barbara Pyle. Barbara Pyle was an environmental activist and a TV producer. Ted Turner was the founder of CNN. And both of them explicitly say that they read Jimmy Carter's report that he had commissioned in 1980. So the two creators read this report, got the shit scared out of him, said, oh fuck, this, all these scientists are predicting a bleak future. So they said, we need to make a children's cartoon show that takes directly from Jimmy Carter's Global 2000 report and we need to warn the children about what's going to happen if they don't become environmental activists. And that there is literally how Captain Planet was born. Ted Turner and Barbara Pyle had read Jimmy Carter's report. I'm going to read some quotes now from Barbara Pyle, one of the creators of Captain Planet. She says, We lifted the characters and locations from environmental documentaries that I had made. The Planeteers and many of the characters were based on real people. She'd based them on uh, environmental activists that she'd worked with. She said in 2019, The show became a global phenomenon. People recognised their countries and their neighbours. The merchandising was hard for me to stomach. But business does what business does. Captain Planet's image was prohibited on single-use plastics. The action figures were made from plastic scrap. Only recycled paper was used. Our goal was to arm a generation with the knowledge to find more sustainable ways of living on the planet. Um, and I, do, I personally don't think Captain Planet succeeded in that goal. As I mentioned earlier, I think the consumerism trumped it all. I, I really I didn't come away from Captain Planet as a child 
feeling that I could do anything. I felt as if, if I just buy enough magic rings, Captain Planet will show up and maybe he will save the planet. But I never felt that I could do it. It never felt realistic. It felt like something that was far off in the future. And that's that's where Captain Planet failed. It managed to package the solution as something you could purchase. A feeling, an emotion. You could wear your activism. You could purchase your activism as a commodity. It didn't empower us. Tried its fucking best. Really tried its best. But once you dangled those lovely shiny ties in front of in front of a kid, the toy becomes the solution. So that's my that's my hot take critique of P- Captain Planet. Captain Planet is something I deeply respect. It's something that I return to as an adult with sadness, because what they were telling us was so fucking important, so on the ball, with so many different episodes, and I can't believe that I sat down and watch this every day as a kid and not a huge amount of it sunk in because it was born out of two completely opposing positions from the 1980 presidential election Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan it was born from the deregulation of children's advertising brought in by Reagan the unfettered greedy capitalism of that and then the Global 2000 report by Jimmy Carter which is a report based on compassion. The Carter report was, I don't give a fuck about money. We need to make less money so that the world can be safe. And then the Reagan policy is, let's just fuck children's heads up and sell them a bunch of shit because business is really important. You can't have those two extreme positions coexist together harmoniously. And that's what fucked up Captain Planet. Here's a bunch of shit about the world that I'd like to warn you about. It's really important while you're young. Would you like to be the change in the world? Yes, I would. Well, how about instead of being the change in the world, I sell you some trinkets that make you feel as if you're the change in the world and appear as if you're the change in the world. Consumerism. That's Captain Planet in a nutshell. And while Captain Planet was mostly on the ball, in particular there's a, there's a chilling episode called Two Futures which portrays the world in 2025. And it's, it's a world of rising seas, extreme weather and food shortages, which is quite accurate. You know, it's got a lot of accurate cutting episodes that I wish I understood when I was younger. But there's one episode of Captain Planet that stands out and I never saw this until I was an adult because they didn't play it in Ireland. There's a really, really fucking batshit mad episode of Captain Planet where they visit Belfast and try to tackle sectarianism. And fuck me, did they get it wrong. I'll play you a little sample here to see, so you can hear how fucking ridiculous this is. This is a a Protestant and a Catholic uh, arguing over who gets to press the button on the nuclear bomb. Tell me how this works, or you'll be lacking more than a job. Burn one of our homes and I'll wipe out the Protestant side of Belfast. I heard twas the Catholic side would be destroyed. Go ahead, push it. What have I got left to live for anyway? This is nuts. So in that episode, Captain Planet and the Planeteers go to Belfast because the Loyalists and the Nationalists 
have gotten their hands on a nuclear bomb and they intend to blow up all of Belfast. So Captain Planet and the Planeteers managed to get them to realise that if they, if they put off the nuclear bomb, it just kills everybody. So the Catholics and Protestants put their <laughs> differences aside and then Captain Planet helps them to open up a cooperative bakery. And I never saw that episode when I was a child because it was banned. It was banned in Ireland and Britain. Banned by the... Well, the RTE didn't show it in Ireland and the Brits never showed it on BBC. I think everyone collectively agreed, agreed that it wasn't going to help anyone. And I also mentioned that I wanted to... I wanted to contrast Captain Planet briefly with a piece of work called Why I Want to Fuck Ronald Reagan. Now, Why I Want to Fuck Ronald Reagan is a short story written in 1968 by J.G. Ballard. It's possibly... possibly my favourite short story of all time. It's not a particularly enjoyable thing to read. It's just so overwhelmingly creative and ahead of its time. It knocks me... it knocks me down every time I fucking read it. So J.G. Ballard was... You could call him a science fiction writer. He was a British science fiction writer. He was also a satirist. Years ahead of his time, he's a writer that I admire. J.G. Ballard was interested in climate change. In 1962, now this is, 62 is a long time ago, lads. In 1962, J.G. Ballard wrote a novel called The Drowned World. And it was a post, it was an, it was an apocalyptic vision of the future in 2045 where global warming had made the earth uninhabitable and the sea the sea had raised so J.G. Ballard was writing that in 1962 J.G. Ballard was so on the ball that he was going this is what's going to happen in the future and I'm going to write about it and it's going to be terrifying and in 1968 J.G. Ballard tried to warn the world about Ronald Reagan via fiction so in 1968, J.G. Ballard published a short story called Why I Want to Fuck Ronald Reagan. And it's written as a fake scientific document. It's like a fake scientific report about Ronald Reagan. And it's about Americans being sexually aroused by the face of Ronald Reagan but sexually aroused by the face of Ronald Reagan and that this sexual arousal was triggered by the violent spectacle of President Kennedy's assassination this is far out experimental literature this is mad shit really fucking mad shit Ballard delves deep into Freudian psychoanalysis the roots of human sexual desire, the connection between sex and violence, the themes of eros and thanatos, which are the death and sex instincts. It's heavy stuff. It's not easy to read, but it's a work of outstanding genius. And it's also fucking hilarious. So here's, here's the thing about Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was a film star. He was a movie star. In the 1950s. He wasn't a politician. He was a fucking movie star. 
and then he became the governor of California in the 60s. And this was kind of mad that a movie star, like now it's normal, we've had Donald Trump. Donald Trump was president, he was a reality TV star. You've had Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor of California. But the one who started this shit, this specifically American phenomenon, was Ronald Reagan. He was a movie star who became a politician and then became a president. This was nuts. So J.G. Ballard said about Reagan about and about why he wrote the short story, Why I Wanna Fuck uh, Ronald Reagan. Ballard says, In his commercials, Reagan used the smooth teleprompter perfect tones of the TV auto salesman to project a political message that was absolutely the reverse of bland and reassuring. A complete discontinuity existed between Reagan's manner and body language on the one hand and his scarily simplistic far-right message on the other. Above all, it struck me that Reagan was the first politician to exploit the fact that his TV audience would not be listening too closely, if at all, to what he was saying, and indeed might well assume from his manner and presentation that he was saying the exact opposite of the words actually emerging from his mouth. So what Ballard is saying there in the 1960s is this fucking Ronald Reagan fella, he's not a politician, he's an advertiser. He's not selling you, this isn't politics, this is advertising. This is a far-right message sold to you through the friendly language of advertising and you're not going to be able to tell the difference. Just like in the 1980s, because Ronald Reagan deregulated the children's uh, advertising rules, whereby kids were watching cartoons, but in fact were being sold toys, Ballard in the 1960s was saying, this is what Ronald Reagan is doing. He's not a politician. These are adverts. This looks and sounds like he's selling you pancakes. He's selling you right-wing fascism. And you can't tell the difference because you're so conditioned to the messages of Hollywood and advertising. And it's almost impossible for us to fathom this today because we have 24-hour news networks. This is simply how politics is now. Politics takes place now, especially American politics, British politics, Political messages now take place using the language of entertainment and news takes place using the visual and aural language of entertainment. Like Sky News uses... When Sky News has breaking news, it has a whooshing sound. Like I'm watching fucking a sci-fi film. This is now totally normal. But in the 1960s, this was absurd. This was brand new and J.G. Ballard was frightened by it. So he wrote, Why I Want to Fuck Ronald Reagan, as a warning. I'll read you a tiny excerpt from the short story, because it is heavy going, and this is written to sound like a very technical report. So it opens with, During these assassination fantasies, Ronald Reagan and the conceptual auto-disaster, Numerous studies have been conducted upon patients in terminal pariasis, placing Reagan in a series of simulated auto crashes, e.g. multiple pile-ups, head-on collisions, motorcade attacks. Fantasies of presidential assassinations remained a continuing, continuing preoccupation. Subjects showed a marked polymorphic fixation on windshields 
and rear trunk assemblies. Powerful erratic fantasies of an anal sadistic character surrounded the image of the presidential contender. So the entire... The entire piece is... It's like a psychological report that says that... A. The American public experienced the assassination of President Kennedy. So President Kennedy was assassinated in 62 and it was quite public. Images of him being shot into the head in the motorcade were all over the media. And Ballard was investigating the plausible concept that when you present images of violence in the media of the presidential assassination of Kennedy getting killed but then at the same time in the same newspaper you've got like beautiful Hollywood starlets you've got sex and death in the media alongside each other with no boundary in between that unconsciously people then become sexually aroused by the assassination of President Kennedy and because they're sexually aroused by the violence of that when Ronald Reagan comes along as governor of California with his Hollywood voice and how clean cut he looks Ballard is saying that people are getting their anuses widened with sexual desire and getting erections at the thought of wanting to fuck Ronald Reagan in this strange, deep, unconscious continual dance between sex and death like it's, it, this, is ex, this is extreme stuff it's deeply clever, extreme stuff and it's, it's satire and it's a hot take it's a hot take that's plausible it's very plausible we're human beings we consume information and the 1960s was a time when humanity was confronted with quite a lot of sex and violence in the media in a way that humanity had not been confronted with before because television wasn't where it was at. Now we have a different situation today. The world that Ballard was afraid of has now fully materialised with the internet. You crack open your Facebook and people can't tell what's real and what's not. And you've got horrendous videos of violence, you've got hardcore sex, you've got racism, a social media timeline is a bombardment of many extreme conflicting images and emotions and then you have to ask how do we tell the difference between them all and people don't know now if their news is real or fake people can't tell anymore and Ballard believed that Reagan was the beginning of that is he a politician or is he a movie star is he a politician or is he a movie star I know him from the movies he talks perfectly. He's good looking. He's a, he's a movie star. But the politics he's talking about are right wing. I can't tell the difference. And that conflict, taking it back to Captain Planet, is also what caused Captain Planet to fail. Does this want me to be an environmentalist or does it want to sell me ties? I can't tell the difference. Is it selling me the tie instead of being an environmentalist? I don't know. Is this an advert? I can't tell. So that's my little detour into J.G. Ballard because that's something I wanted to speak about. If you're interested in reading that story, it's in a collection of short stories called The Atrocity Exhibition. Not very heavy stuff. Very fucked up. Highly experimental. 
Not necessarily an enjoyable read, but fascinating. When Ballard published Why I Want to Fuck Ronald Reagan, the, the, the person who published it was arrested and successfully prosecuted for obscenity. It was considered a really dangerous piece of work. It was banned. Check out the work of J.G. Ballard in general. Incredibly exciting science fiction writer. So that was this week's podcast. I hope my voice has gone a bit croaky, lads. My voice has gone a bit croaky because I was doing a little gig in Vicar Street and shouting into microphones. So apologies for my hoarse voice for some of this podcast. But that was my little hot take. I hope it wasn't too selfish. I hope it wasn't. Th- this is a very niche-specific episode where I'm contrasting J.G. Ballard with Captain Planet and I'm aware how niche that is and how that might not be accessible or relatable. But my rule for this podcast is I want each week to speak about something that I'm genuinely passionate about or care about so that that passion then translates to ye as a form of entertainment. I mean, I don't want to be talking about shit I don't give a fuck about. I've been obsessing about this all week. Thinking about Captain Planet and consumerism and J.G. Ballard. So I hope you enjoyed that. I'm going to end the podcast now. Play a little advert. And then afterwards, I'm going to come back with my new segment on the podcast. Where I speak about and play ye a piece of music from my live stream. From my live Twitch stream. But if you're not interested in music or any of that shit, you can just turn off the podcast now. You don't have to listen to it. So that'll be after the end ad. For the rest of you, God bless and good luck. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, if you're if you're here for this bit, that means you have an interest in my online live stream that I do on Twitch once a week. So on Twitch, what I've been doing is making a form of participatory art. Over the pandemic, I've been trying to write and make songs in a way that is literally a new way to write and make songs because I go on twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast where I play a video game. It's a digital environment set in 19th century America, Red Dead Redemption 2. So I wander a digital wilderness. But while I'm doing this live, I also have musical instruments with me and recording equipment. And I basically write songs to the events of a video game as it happens in real time. So the the hyper-real world of the video game informs what inspires me to write songs in the moment and I make songs up in the moment depending on whatever is happening in the game so I call this hyper real songwriting because real songwriting 
you're writing something based on reality. But this isn't reality. This is a pandemic-induced, hyper-real reality. The reality of a video game. So the songs themselves now become hyper-real. And it's also participatory because people are watching me doing this online and sometimes people make suggestions or comments which will find themselves into the songs that I'm writing. I do it for about an hour. I write about four songs in the moment. I make them up on the spot based on what's happening in the video game. make about four or five songs an hour. A lot of them are shit. Out of every hour, there's always one that I quite enjoy. There's one where I achieve creative flow and I create something that I'm happy with. It's also a process-based way to make art. When I write songs on my Twitch stream, it's not necessarily about the end result. It's about the experience of being part of the process. So I'm going to play you a song that I would have written on Twitch a few months back. And this song is called Garda Sheehan. And so basically, I was in Red Dead Redemption 2, wandering around an area near a docks. So it was like, it was a docks where there was a bunch of ships in the outskirts of this Victorian city. And I was wandering around there. And I saw a policeman. And the policeman was leaning against a railing. But he was leaning in such a way that he could be very easily pushed into the water. So when this happened in the, in the game, I felt inspired by that. And I decided to call that Garda, Garda Sheehan. And the lyrics are, Garda Sheehan, I see you standing leaning against the railing beside the river. Because that's what he was doing. The Garda in the video game was leaning against the railing beside the river. And I wanted to push him in. I wanted to push the policeman into the river. So this is all happening in the digital environment. So I decide, let's write a song. I take out my guitar, did a very simple riff. And I built a melody from there with some claps. I have some gospel-style double-time clapping. And then I got some nice little guitar tones out of my slide. So I created a song. All of this is made up in the moment. I don't know what the next lyric is. I don't know what the next note is. I made it all up in the moment. Recorded it with a looping pedal. And then was finished going, fuck it, that's quite a nice song. That's a... It's a nice song about pushing a guard into the river. And of course at the end, I didn't successfully push the guard into the river, in the digital environment. It didn't work. I actually ended up falling into the river myself, into the digital river. But that was beautiful. That's what happens. This is process-based art. It's improvised music making. It's improvised hyper-real songwriting. I don't know what's going to happen. I leave it all up to the faith of the... The digital gods, the algorithm, the algorithm of the game. The algorithm that causes events to unfold within the game. So I appreciate that all of this is a bit, uh, a bit highfalutin. So that's why I throw it at the end of the podcast. Because it's, it's quite a selfish project of mine. And I can't assume that everybody is interested in it. So I'll play you the songs. And again, what I love, the reason I like to play you these songs on this podcast is... This was written to a video game, so there's a visual involved. But when I play it on this podcast, I've stripped the visual away. So now the lyrics, every time I do this, the lyrics now take on a new meaning. Because the visual world is removed. And you're just left with the audio of it. 
and I like that recontextualization. So here's the song. It's called Garda Sheehan, I See You Standing Leaning Against the Railing Beside the River. I'll catch you next week. Sheehan, I see you standing leaning against the railing beside the river. God bless Sheehan, I see you standing leaning against the railing beside the river. God bless Sheehan, I see you standing leaning against the railing beside the river. God bless Sheehan, I see you standing leaning against the railing beside the river. Got the she in the sea, standing leaning against the railing beside the river. Got the she in the sea, standing leaning against the railing beside the river. Got the she in the sea, standing leaning against the railing beside the river. There's a woman over there, her name is Mrs. O'Carroll. Will you tell on me if I push? Got a she in on ya. supposed to happen at all. <laughs>